Section 8 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1889 to 1892. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. State of the Union Address Benjamin Harrison, December 6, 1892, Part 1 To the Senate and House of Representatives in submitting my annual message to congress i have great satisfaction in being able to say that the general conditions affecting the commercial and industrial interests of the united states are in the highest degree favorable a comparison of the existing conditions with those of the most favored period in the history of the country will i believe show that so high a degree of prosperity and so general a diffusion of the comforts of life were never before enjoyed by our people. The total wealth of the country in 1860 was $16,159,616,068. In 1890, it amounted to $62,610,000,000, an increase of 287%. The total mileage of railways in the United States in 1860 was 30,626. In 1890, it was 167,741, an increase of 448%. It is estimated that there will be about 4,000 miles of track added by the close of the year 1892. The official returns of the 11th census and those of the 10th census for 75 leading cities furnish the basis for the following comparisons. In 1880, the capital invested in manufacturing was 1,232,839,671. In 1890, the capital invested in manufacturing was 2,900,735,884. In 1880, the number of employees was 1,301,000. 388. In 1890, the number of employees was 2,251,134. In 1880, the wages earned were $501,965,778. In 1890, the wages earned were 1,221,170,400. The value of the product was two billion seven hundred and eleven million five hundred and seventy nine thousand eight hundred and ninety nine dollars. In eighteen ninety, the value of the product was four billion eight hundred and sixty million two hundred and eighty six thousand eight hundred and thirty seven. I am informed by the superintendent of the census that the emission of certain industries in eighteen eighty, which were included in eighteen ninety, accounts in part for the remarkable increase thus shown but after making full allowance for differences of method and deducting the returns for all industries not included in the census of eighteen eighty there remains in the reports from these seventy-five cities an increase in the capital employed one billion five hundred and twenty two million seven hundred and forty five thousand six hundred and four dollars in the value of the product of two billion twenty four million two hundred and thirty six thousand one hundred and sixty six dollars in wages earned of six hundred and seventy seven million nine hundred and forty three thousand nine hundred and twenty nine dollars and in the number of wage earners employed of eight hundred and fifty six thousand twenty nine the wage earnings not only show an increased aggregate but an increased per capita from $386 in 1880 to $547 in 1890, or 41.71%. The new industrial plants, established since October 6, 1890, and up to October 22, 1892, as partially reported in the American Economist No. 345, and the extension of existing plants 108, the new capital invested amounts to $40,449,050, and the number of additional employees, 
to 37,285. The Textile World for July 1892 states that during the first six months of the present calendar year, 135 new factories were built, of which 40 are cotton mills, 48 knitting mills, 26 woolen mills, 15 silk mills, 4 plush mills, and 2 linen mills. Of the 40 cotton mills, 21 have been built in southern states. Mr. A. B. Shepperson of the New York Cotton Exchange estimates the number of working spindles in the United States on September 1, 1892, at 15,200,000, an increase of 660,000 over the year 1891. The consumption of cotton by American mills in 1891 was 2,000,000. 396,000 bales, and in 1892, 2,584,000 bales, an increase of 188,000 bales. From the year 1869 to 1892 inclusive, there has been an increase in the consumption of cotton in Europe of 92%, while during the same period, the increased consumption in the United States has been about 150%. The report of Ira Iyer, Special Agent of the Treasury Department, shows that at the date of September 30, 1892, there were 32 companies manufacturing tin and turn plate in the United States, and 14 companies building new works for such manufacture. The estimated investment in buildings and plants at the close of the fiscal year, June 30, 1893, if existing conditions were to be continued, was $5 million, and the estimated rate of production, 200 million pounds per annum. The actual production for the quarter ending September 30, 1892, was 10,952,725 pounds. The report of Labor Commissioner Peck of New York shows that during the year 1891, in about 6,000 manufacturing establishments in that state, embraced within the special inquiry made by him, and representing 67 different industries, there was a net increase over the year 1890 of $30,315,130.68 in the value of the product, and of 6377000 $925.09 in the amount of wages paid. The report of the Commissioner of Labor for the State of Massachusetts shows that 3,745 industries in that state paid $129,416,248 in wages during the year 1891 against $126,030,303 in 1890, an increase of $3,335,945, and that there was an increase of $9,932,490 in the amount of capital and of 7,346 in the number of persons employed in the same period. During the last six months of the year 1891 and the first six months of 1892, the total production of pig iron was 9,710,819 tons, as against 9,202,703 tons in the year 1890, which was the largest annual production ever attained. For the same 12 months of 1891 through 92, the production of Bessemer ingots was 3,878,581 tons, an increase of 189,710 gross tons over the previously unprecedented yearly production of 3,688,871 gross tons in 1890. The production of Bessemer steel rails for the first six months of 1892 was 772,436 gross tons, as against 
702,080 gross tons during the last six months of the year 1891. The total value of our foreign trade, exports, and imports of merchandise during the last fiscal year was 1,857,680,610 dollars, an increase of $128,283,604 over the previous fiscal year. The average annual value of our imports and exports of merchandise for the 10 fiscal years prior to 1891 was $1,457,322,019. It will be observed that our foreign trade for 1892 exceeded this annual average value by $400,358,591, an increase of 27.47%. The significance and value of this increase are shown by the fact that the excess in the trade of 1892 over 1891 was wholly in the value of exports, for there was a decrease in the value of imports, of $17,513,754. The value of our exports during the fiscal year 1892 reached the highest figure in the history of the government, amounting to $1,030,278,148, exceeding by $145,797,338, the exports of 1891, and exceeding the value of the imports by $202,875,686. A comparison of the value of our exports for 1892 with the annual average for the 10 years prior to 1891 shows an excess of $265,142,651, or of 34.65%. The value of our imports of merchandise for 1892, which was $829,402,462, also exceeded the annual average value of the 10 years prior to 1891, by $135,215,940. During the fiscal year 1892, the value of imports free of duty amounted to $457,999,658, the largest aggregate in the history of our commerce. The value of the imports of merchandise entered free of duty in 1892 was 55.35% of the total value of imports, as compared with 43.35% in 1891 and 33.66% in 1890. In our coastwise trade, a most encouraging development is in progress, there having been in the last four years an increase of 16%. In internal commerce, the statistics show that no such period of prosperity has ever before existed. The freight carried in the coastwise trade of the Great Lakes in 1890 aggregated 28,295,959 tons. On the Mississippi, Missouri, and Ohio rivers and tributaries in the same year, the traffic aggregated 29 million. 405,046 tons, and the total vessel tonnage passing through the Detroit River during that year was 21,684,000 tons. The vessel tonnage entered and cleared in the foreign trade of London during 1890 amounted to 13,480,767 tons, and of Liverpool, 10 million 941,800 tons, a total for these two great shipping ports of 24,422,568 tons, only slightly in excess of the vessel tonnage passing through the Detroit River. And it should be said 
that the season for the Detroit River was but 228 days, while, of course, in London and Liverpool, the season was for the entire year. The vessel tonnage passing through St. Mary's Canal for the fiscal year 1892 amounted to 9,828,874 tons, and the freight tonnage of the Detroit River is estimated for that year at 25 million tons against 23,209,619 tons in 1891. The aggregate traffic on our railroads for the year 1891 amounted to 704,398,609 tons of freight compared with 691,344,000 437 tons in 1890, an increase of 13,054,172 tons. Another indication of the general prosperity of the country is found in the fact that the number of depositors and savings banks increased from 693,870 in 1860 to 4,258,000 893 in 1890, an increase of 513 percent, and the amount of deposits from 140,277,504 in 1860 to 1,524,844,506 in 1890, an increase of 921 percent. In 1891, the amount of deposits in savings banks was one billion six hundred and twenty three million seventy nine thousand seven hundred and forty nine dollars. It is estimated that ninety percent of these deposits represent the savings of wage earners. The bank clearances for nine months ending september thirty, eighteen ninety one amounted to forty one billion forty nine million three hundred and ninety thousand and eight dollars. For the same months in 1892, they amounted to $45,189,601,947, in excess for the nine months of $4,140,211,139. There never has been a time in our history when work was so abundant or when wages were as high, whether measured by the currency in which they are paid or by their power to supply the necessaries and comforts of life. It is true that the market prices of cotton and wheat have been low. It is one of the unfavorable incidents of agriculture that the farmer cannot produce upon orders. He must sow and reap in ignorance of the aggregate production of the year and is peculiarly subject to the depreciation which follows overproduction. But while the fact I have stated is true as to the crops mentioned, the general average of prices has been such as to give to agriculture a fair participation in the general prosperity. The value of our total farm products has increased from $1 three hundred and sixty three million six hundred and forty six thousand eight hundred and sixty six dollars in eighteen sixty to four billion five hundred million dollars in eighteen ninety one as estimated by statisticians an increase of two hundred and thirty per cent the number of hogs of january one eighteen ninety was fifty million six hundred and twenty five thousand one hundred and six and their value two hundred and ten million one hundred and ninety three thousand nine hundred and twenty five dollars on january one eighteen ninety two the number was fifty two million three hundred and ninety eight thousand and nineteen and the value was two hundred and forty one million thirty one thousand four hundred and fifteen dollars on january one eighteen ninety one the number of cattle was thirty six million eight hundred and seventy five thousand six hundred and forty eight and the value was five hundred and forty four million one hundred and twenty seven thousand nine hundred and eight dollars on january one eighteen ninety two the number was thirty seven million six hundred and fifty one thousand two hundred and thirty nine and the value was five hundred and seventy million seven hundred and forty nine thousand 
$155. If any are discontented with their state here, if any believe that wages or prices, the returns for honest toil, are inadequate, they should not fail to remember that there is no other country in the world where the conditions that seem to them hard would not be accepted as highly prosperous. The English agriculturalist would be glad to exchange the returns of his labor for those of the American farmer, and the Manchester workmen their wages for those of their fellows at Fall River. I believe that the protective system, which has now for something more than thirty years continuously prevailed in our legislation, has been a mighty instrument for the development of our national wealth, and a most powerful agency in protecting the homes of our workingmen from the invasion of want. I have felt a most solicitous interest to preserve to our working people rates of wages that would not only give daily bread, but supply a comfortable margin for those home attractions and family comforts and enjoyments without which life is neither hopeful nor sweet. They are American citizens a part of the great people for whom our Constitution and government were framed and instituted, and it cannot be a perversion of that Constitution to so legislate as to preserve in their homes the comfort, independence, loyalty, and sense of interest in the government which are essential to good citizenship in peace, and which will bring this stalwart throng, as in 1861, to the defense of the flag when it is assailed. It is not my purpose to renew here the argument in favor of a protective tariff. The result of the recent election must be accepted as having introduced a new policy. We must assume that the present tariff, constructed upon the lines of protection, is to be repealed, and that there is to be substituted for it a tariff law constructed solely with a reference to revenue that no duty is to be higher because the increase will keep open an American mill or keep up the wages of an American workman, but that in every case such a rate of duty is to be imposed as will bring to the Treasury of the United States the largest returns of revenue. The contention has not been between schedules, but between principles, and it would be offensive to suggest that the prevailing party will not carry into legislation the principles advocated by it and the pledges given to the people. The tariff bills passed by the House of Representatives at the last session were, as I suppose, even in the opinion of their promoters, inadequate and justified only by the fact that the Senate and House of Representatives were not in accord and that a general revision could not therefore be undertaken. I recommend that the whole subject of tariff revision be left to the incoming Congress. It is a matter of regret that this work must be delayed for at least three months, for the threat of great tariff changes introduces so much uncertainty that an amount not easily estimated of business inaction and of diminished production will necessarily result. It is possible also that this uncertainty may result in decreased revenues from customs duties, for our merchants will make cautious orders for foreign goods in view of the prospect of tariff reductions and the uncertainty as to when they will take effect. For those who have advocated a protective tariff can well afford to have their disastrous forecasts of a change of policy disappointed. If a system of customs duties can be framed that will set the idle wheels and looms of Europe in motion and crowd our warehouses with foreign-made goods and at the same time keep our own mills busy, that will give us an increased participation in the markets of the world of greater value than the home market we surrender, that will give increased work to foreign workmen upon products to be consumed by our people without diminishing the amount of work to be done here, that will enable the American manufacturer to pay his workmen from 50 to 100% more in wages than is paid in the foreign mill, 
and yet to compete in our market and in foreign markets with the foreign producer, that will further reduce the cost of articles of wear and food without reducing the wages of those who produce them, that can be celebrated after its effects have been realized as its expectation has been in European as well as American cities for authors and promoters of it, will be entitled to the highest praise. We have had in our history several experiences of the contrasted effects of a revenue and of a protective tariff, but this generation has not felt them, and the experience of one generation is not highly instructive to the next. The friends of the protective system, with undiminished confidence in the principles they have advocated, will await the results of the new experiment. The strained and too often disturbed relations existing between the employees and the employers in our great manufacturing establishments have not been favorable to a calm consideration by the wage earner of the effect upon wages of the protective system. The facts that his wages were the highest paid in like callings in the world and that a maintenance of this rate of wages in the absence of protective duties upon the product of his labor was impossible, were obscured by the passion evoked by these contests. He may now be able to review the question, in the light of his personal experience under the operation of a tariff, for revenue only. If that experience shall demonstrate that present rates of wages are thereby maintained or increased, either absolutely or in their purchasing power, and that the aggregate volume of work to be done in this country is increased or even maintained, so that there are more or as many days work in a year, at as good or better wages for the American workman as has been the case under the protective system, everyone will rejoice. A general process of wage reduction cannot be contemplated by any patriotic citizen without the gravest apprehension. It may be, indeed I believe is possible for the American manufacturer to compete successfully with his foreign rival in many branches of production without the defense of protective duties if the payrolls are equalized. But the conflict that stands between the producer and that result and the distress of our working people when it is attained are not pleasant to contemplate. The society of the unemployed, now holding its frequent and threatening parades in the streets of foreign cities, should not be allowed to acquire an American domicile. The reports of the heads of the several executive departments, which are herewith submitted, have very naturally included a resume of the whole work of the administration with the transactions of the last fiscal year. The attention not only of Congress, but of the country, is again invited to the methods of administration which have been pursued and to the results which have been attained. Public revenues amounting to one billion four hundred and fourteen million seventy nine thousand two hundred and ninety two dollars and twenty eight cents have been collected and dispersed without loss from misappropriation, without a single defalcation of such importance as to attract the public attention and at a diminished percent of cost for collection. The public business has been transacted not only with fidelity, but progressively, and with a view to giving to the people in the fullest possible degree the benefits of a service established and maintained for their protection and comfort. Our relations with other nations are now undisturbed by any serious controversy. The complicated and threatening differences with Germany and England relating to Samoan affairs with England in relation to the seal fisheries in the Bering Sea and with Chile growing out of the Baltimore affair have been adjusted. There have been negotiated and concluded, under Section 3 of the Tariff Law, commercial agreements relating to reciprocal trade with the following countries, Brazil, Dominican Republic, Spain, for Cuba and Puerto Rico, Guatemala, Salvador, the German Empire, Great Britain for certain West Indian colonies and British Guiana, Nicaragua, Honduras, and Austria-Hungary. Of these, those with Guatemala, Salvador, the German Empire, Great Britain, Nicaragua, Honduras, and Austria-Hungary have been concluded since my last annual message. 
Under these trade agreements, a free or favored admission has been secured in every case for an important list of American products. A special care has been taken to secure markets for farm products in order to relieve that great underlying industry of the Depression which the lack of an adequate foreign market for our surplus often brings. An opening has also been made for manufactured products that will undoubtedly, if this policy is maintained, greatly augment our export trade. The full benefits of these arrangements cannot be realized instantly. New lines of trade are to be opened. The commercial traveler must survey the field. The manufacturer must adapt his goods to the new markets and facilities for exchange must be established. This work has been well begun, our merchants and manufacturers having entered the new fields with courage and enterprise. In the case of food products, and especially with Cuba, the trade did not need to wait, and the immediate results have been most gratifying. If this policy and these trade arrangements can be continued in force, and aided by the establishment of American steamship lines, I do not doubt that we shall within a short period secure fully one-third of the total trade of the countries of Central and South America, which now amounts to about $600 million annually. In 1885, we only had 8% of this trade. The following statistics show the increase in our trade with the countries with which we have reciprocal trade agreements from the date when such agreements went into effect up to September 30, 1892, the increase being in some almost wholly and in others in an important degree the result of these agreements. The domestic exports to Germany and Austria-Hungary have increased in value from 47,673,756 dollars to 57,993,064 dollars, an increase of 10,319,308 dollars, or 21.63 percent. With American countries, the value of our exports has increased from $44,160,285 to $54,613,598, an increase of $10,453,313, or 23.67%. The total increase in the value of exports to all the countries with which we have reciprocity agreements has been $20,772,621. This increase is chiefly in wheat, flour, meat, and dairy products, and in manufacturers of iron and steel and lumber. There has been a large increase in the value of imports from all these countries since the commercial agreements went into effect, amounting to $74,294,525. But it has been entirely in imports from the American countries, consisting mostly of sugar, coffee, India rubber, and crude drugs. The alarmed attention of our European competitors for the South American market has been attracted to this new American policy and to our acquisition and their loss of South American trade. A treaty providing for the arbitration of the dispute between Great Britain and the United States as to the killing of seals in the Bering Sea, was concluded on the 29th of February last. This treaty was accompanied by an agreement prohibiting pelagic sealing pending the arbitration, and a vigorous effort was made during the season to drive out all poaching sealers from the Bering Sea. Six naval vessels, three revenue cutters, and one vessel from the Fish Commission, all under the command of Commander Evans of the Navy, were sent into the sea, which was systematically patrolled. Some seizures were made, and it is believed that the catch in the Bering Sea by poachers amounted to less than 500 seals. It is true, however, that in the North Pacific, while the seal herds were on their way to the passes between the Aleutian Islands, a very large number, probably 35,000, were taken. The existing statutes of the United States do not restrain our citizens from taking seals in the Pacific Ocean, and perhaps should not. 
unless the prohibition can be extended to the citizens of other nations. I recommend that power be given to the President by proclamation to prohibit the taking of seals in the North Pacific by American vessels in case, either as the result of the findings of the Tribunal of Arbitration or otherwise. The restraints can be applied to the vessels of all countries. The case of the United States for the Tribunal of Arbitration has been prepared with great care and industry by the Honorable John W. Foster, and the counsel who represent this government express confidence that a result substantially establishing our claims and preserving this great industry for the benefit of all nations will be attained. During the past year, a suggestion was received through the British minister that the Canadian government would like to confer as to the possibility of enlarging upon terms of mutual advantage the commercial exchanges of Canada and of the United States, and a conference was held at Washington with Mr. Blaine acting for this government and the British minister at this capital and three members of the Dominion cabinet acting as commissioners on the part of Great Britain. The conference developed the fact that the Canadian government was only prepared to offer to the United States in exchange for the concessions asked the admission of natural products. The statement was frankly made that favored rates could not be given to the United States as against the mother country. This admission, which was foreseen, necessarily terminated the conference upon this question. The benefits of an exchange of natural products would be wholly with the people of Canada. Some other topics of interest were considered in the conference and have resulted in the making of a convention for examining the Alaskan boundary and the waters of Passamaquoddy Bay, adjacent to Eastport, Maine, and in the initiation of an arrangement for the protection of fish life in the coterminous and neighboring waters of our northern border. The controversy as to the tolls upon the Whalen Canal, which was presented to Congress at the last session by special message, having failed of adjustment, I felt constrained to exercise the authority conferred by the Act of July 26, 1892, and to proclaim a suspension of the free use of St. Mary's Falls Canal to cargoes and transit to ports in Canada. The Secretary of the Treasury established such tolls as were thought to be the equivalent to the exactions unjustly levied upon our commerce in the Canadian canals. If, as we must suppose, the political relations of Canada and the disposition of the Canadian government are to remain unchanged, a somewhat radical revision of our trade relations should, I think, be made. Our relations must continue to be intimate, and they should be friendly. I regret to say, however, that in many of the controversies, notably those as to the fisheries on the Atlantic, the sealing interests on the Pacific, and the canal tolls, our negotiations with Great Britain have continuously been thwarted or retarded by unreasonable and unfriendly objections and protests from Canada in the matter of the canal tolls. Our treaty rights were flagrantly disregarded. It is hardly too much to say that the Canadian Pacific and other railway lines which parallel our northern boundary are sustained by commerce, having either its origin or terminus or both in the United States. Canadian railroads compete with those of the United States for our traffic, and without the restraints of our Interstate Commerce Act, their cars passed almost without detention into and out of our territory. The Canadian Pacific Railway brought into the United States from China and Japan via British Columbia during the year ended June 30, 1892, 23,000,000 239,689 pounds of freight, and it carried from the United States to be shipped to China and Japan via British Columbia, 24,068,346 pounds of freight. They were also shipped from the United States over this road, from eastern ports of the United States to our Pacific ports during the same year, 13,912,000 73 pounds of freight, 
and there were received over this road at the United States eastern ports from ports on the Pacific coast 13,293,315 pounds of freight. Mr. Joseph Nemo, Jr., former chief of the Bureau of Statistics, when before the Senate Select Committees on Relations with Canada, April 26, 1890, said that the value of goods thus transported between different points in the United States across Canadian territory probably amounts to $100 million a year. There is no disposition on the part of the people or government of the United States to interfere in the smallest degree with the political relations of Canada. That question is wholly with our own people. It is time for us, however, to consider whether, if the present state of things and trend of things is to continue, our interchanges upon lines of land transportation should not be put upon a different basis, and our entire independence of Canadian canals and of the St. Lawrence as an outlet to the sea, secured by the construction of an American canal around the falls of Niagara and the opening of ship communications between the Great Lakes and one of our own seaports. We should not hesitate to avail ourselves of our great natural trade advantages. We should withdraw the support which is given to the railroads and steamship lines off Canada by a traffic that properly belongs to us and no longer furnish the earnings which lighten the otherwise crushing weight of the enormous public subsidies to have been given to them. The subject of the power of the Treasury to deal with this matter without further legislation has been under consideration but circumstances have postponed a conclusion. It is probable that a consideration of the propriety of a modification or abrogation of the article of the Treaty of Washington relating to the transit of goods and bond is involved in any complete solution of the question. Congress, at the last session, was kept advised of the progress of the serious and, for a time, threatening difference between the United States and Chile. It gives me now great gratification to report that the Chilean government, in a most friendly and honorable spirit, has tended and paid as an indemnity to the families of the sailors of the Baltimore who were killed and to those who were injured in the outbreak in the city of El Paraiso the sum of $75,000. This has been accepted not only as an indemnity for a wrong done, but as a most gratifying evidence that the government of Chile rightly appreciates the disposition of this government to act in a spirit of the most absolute fairness and friendliness in our intercourse with that brave people. A further and conclusive evidence of the mutual respect and confidence now existing is furnished by the fact that a convention submitting to arbitration the mutual claims of the citizens of the respective governments has been agreed upon. Some of these claims have been pending for many years and have been the occasion of much unsatisfactory diplomatic correspondence. I have endeavored in every way to assure our sister republics of Central and South America that the United States and its people have only the most friendly disposition toward them all. We do not covet their territory. We have no disposition to be oppressive or exacting in our dealings with any of them, even the weakest. Our interests and hopes for them all lie in the direction of stable governments, by their people, and of the largest development of their great commercial resources. The mutual benefits of enlarged commercial exchanges and of a more familiar and friendly intercourse between our peoples we do desire, and in this have sought their friendly cooperation. I have believed, however, while holding these sentiments in the greatest sincerity, that we must insist upon a just responsibility for any injuries inflicted upon our official representatives or upon our citizens. This insistence, kindly and justly but firmly made, will, I believe, promote peace and mutual respect. Our relations with Hawaii have been such as to attract an increased interest and must continue to do so. I deem it of great importance that the projected submarine cable, a survey for which has been made, should be promoted, both for naval and commercial uses, 
we should have quick communications with Honolulu. We should, before this, have availed ourselves of the concession made many years ago to this government for a harbor and naval station at Pearl River. Many evidences of the friendliness of the Hawaiian government have been given in the past, and it is gratifying to believe that the advantage and necessity of a continuance of very close relations is appreciated. The friendly act of this government in expressing to the government of Italy is reprobation and abhorrence of the lynching of Italian subjects in New Orleans by the payment of 125,000 francs, or $24,330.90, was accepted by the King of Italy with every manifestation of gracious appreciation, and the incident has been highly promotive of mutual respect and goodwill. In consequence of the action of the French government, in proclaiming a protectorate over certain tribal districts of the west coast of Africa, eastward of the San Pedro River, which has long been regarded as the southeastern boundary of Liberia, I have felt constrained to make protest against this encroachment upon the territory of a republic which was rounded by citizens of the United States and toward which this country has for many years held the intimate relation of a friendly counselor. The recent disturbances of the public peace by lawless foreign marauders on the Mexican frontier have afforded this government an opportunity to testify its goodwill for Mexico and its earnest purpose to fulfill the obligations of international friendship by pursuing and dispersing the evildoers. The work of relocating the boundary of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo westward from El Paso is progressing favorably. Our intercourse with Spain continues on a friendly footing. I regret, however, not to be able to report as yet the adjustment of the claims of the American missionaries arising from the disorders at Pompeii at the Caroline Islands, but I anticipate a satisfactory adjustment in view of renewed and urgent representations to the government at Madrid. The treatment of the religious and educational establishments of American citizens in Turkey has of late called for a more than unusual share of attention, a tendency to curtail the toleration which has so beneficially prevailed is discernible and has called forth the earnest remonstrance of this government. Harassing regulations in regard to schools and churches have been attempted in certain localities, but not without due protest and the assertion of the inherent and conventional rights of our countrymen. Violations of domicile and search of the persons and effects of citizens of the United States by apparently irresponsible officials in the Asiatic billets have from time to time been reported. An aggravated instance of injury to the property of an American missionary at Bordeaux in the province of Konya called forth an urgent claim for reparation, which I am pleased to say was promptly heeded by the government of the Porta. Interference with the trading ventures of our citizens in Asia Minor is also reported, and the lack of consular representation in that region is a serious drawback to instant and effective protection. I cannot believe that these incidents represent a settled policy, and shall not cease to urge the adoption of proper remedies. International copyright has been extended to Italy by proclamation in conformity with the Act of March 3, 1891, upon assurance being given that Italian law permits to citizens of the United States the benefit of copyright on substantially the same basis as to subjects of Italy. By a special convention proclaimed January 15, 1892, reciprocal provisions of copyright have been applied between the United States and Germany. Negotiations are in progress with other countries to the same end. I repeat with great earnestness the recommendation which I have made in several previous messages that prompt and adequate support be given to the American company engaged in the construction of the Nicaragua Ship Canal. It is impossible to overstate the value from every standpoint of this great enterprise, and I hope that there may be time even in this Congress 
to give to it an impetus that will ensure the early completion of the canal and secure to the United States its proper relation to it when completed. The Congress has been already advised that the invitations of this government for the assembling of an international monetary conference to consider the question of an enlarged use of silver were accepted by the nations to which they were addressed. The conference assembled at Brussels on the 22nd of November and has entered upon the consideration of this great question. I have not doubted and have taken occasion to express that belief as well in the invitations issued for this conference as in my public messages that the free coinage of silver upon an agreed international ratio would greatly promote the interests of our people and equally those of other nations. It is too early to predict what results may be accomplished by the conference. If any temporary check or delay intervenes, I believe that very soon commercial conditions will compel the now reluctant governments to unite with us in this movement to secure the enlargement of the volume of coined money needed for the transaction of the business of the world. The report of the Secretary of the Treasury will attract a special interest in view of the many misleading statements that have been made as to the state of the public revenues. Three preliminary facts should not only be stated but emphasized before looking into details. First, that the public debt has been reduced since March 4, 1889, $259,074,200, and the annual interest charged, $11 million. $684,469. Second, that there have been paid out for pensions during this administration up to November 1, 1892, $432,564,178.70, in excess of $114,466,388. $386.09 over the sum expended during the period from March 1, 1885 to March 1, 1889. And third, that under the existing tariff up to December 1, about $93 million of revenue, which would have been collected upon imported sugars if the duty had been maintained, has gone into the pockets of the people and not into the public treasury, as before. If there are any who still think that the surplus should have been kept out of circulation by hoarding it in the Treasury or deposited in favored banks without interest while the government continued to pay to these very banks interest upon the bonds deposited as security for the deposits, or who think that the extended pension legislation was a public robbery, or that the duties upon sugar should have been maintained, I am content to leave the argument where it now rests, while we wait to see whether these criticisms will take the form of legislation. The revenues for the fiscal year ending June 30, 1892, from all sources, were $425,868,260.22, and the expenditures for all purposes were 415 million. $953,806.56, leaving a balance of $9,914,453.66. There were paid during the year upon the public debt $40,570,467.98. The surplus in the Treasury and the Bank Redemption Fund passed by the Act of July 14, 1890, to the General Fund, furnished in large part the cash available and used for the payments made upon the public debt. Compared with the year 1891, our receipts from customs duties fell off $42,069,241.08, while our receipts from internal revenue increased $8,284,823.13, leaving the net loss of revenue from these principal sources 
$33,784,417.95. The net loss of revenue from all sources was $32,675,972.81. The revenues estimated and actual for the fiscal year ending June 30, 1893, are placed by the Secretary at $463,336,350.44, and the expenditures at $461,336,350.44, showing a surplus of receipts over expenditures of $2 million. The cash balance in the Treasury at the end of the fiscal year, it is estimated, will be $20,992,377.03. So far as these figures are based upon estimates of receipts and expenditures for the remaining months of the current fiscal year, there are not only the usual elements of uncertainty, but some added elements. New revenue legislation, or even the expectation of it, may seriously reduce the public revenues during the period of uncertainty and during the process of business adjustment to the new conditions when they become known. But the Secretary has very wisely refrained from guessing as to the effect of possible changes in our revenue laws, since the scope of those changes and the time of their taking effect cannot in any degree be forecast or foretold by him. His estimates must be based upon existing laws and upon a continuance of existing business conditions, except so far as these conditions may be effected by causes other than new legislation. The estimated receipts for the fiscal year ending June 30, 1894 are $490,121,000. $365.38 and the estimated appropriations $457,261,335.33, leaving an estimated surplus of receipts over expenditures of $32,860,030.05. This does not include any payment to the sinking fund. In the recommendation of the Secretary that the sinking fund law be repealed, I concur. The redemption of bonds since the passage of the law to June 30, 1892, has already exceeded the requirements by the sum of $990,510,681.49. The retirement of bonds in the future before maturity should be a matter of convenience, not of compulsion. We should not collect revenue for that purpose, but only use any casual surplus. To the balance of $32,860,030.05 of receipts over expenditures for the year 1894 should be added the estimated surplus at the beginning of the year twenty million. $992,377.03. And from this aggregate, there must be deducted, as stated by the Secretary, about $44 million of estimated unexpected appropriations. The public confidence in the purpose and ability of the government to maintain the parity of all our money issues, whether coin or paper, must remain unshaken. The demand for gold in Europe and the consequent calls upon us are in a considerable degree the result of the efforts of some of the European governments to increase their gold reserves, and these efforts should be made by appropriate legislation on our part. The conditions that have created this drain of the Treasury gold are in an important degree political and not commercial. In view of the fact that a general revision of our revenue laws in the near future seems to be probable, it would be better than any changes should be a part of that revision rather than of a temporary nature. During the last fiscal year, the Secretary purchased, under the Act of July 14, 1890, 
54,355,748 ounces of silver, and issued in payment, therefore, 51,106,608 dollars in notes. The total purchases since the passage of the Act have been 120,479,981 ounces of the aggregate of notes issued 116783590 dollars The average price paid for silver during the year was 94 cents per ounce, the highest price being $1.02 and three quarters, July 1, 1891, and the lowest, 83 cents, March 21, 1892. In view of the fact that the Monetary Conference is now sitting and that no conclusion has yet been reached, I withhold any recommendations as to legislation upon the subject. End of section 8